Heavenly Father, we see the great mission that you've given to your church to be a people who send out missionaries to the lost that they too might hear, repent, and believe. I ask, Lord, that as we begin this new section in the book of Acts, you would encourage us as well, the members here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, to be a missional church. We want to faithfully pray for, we want to finance, and we want to go ourselves to those places where the gospel has yet to be preached. I ask, Lord, that you would use this time of preaching in the next several weeks to maybe reshape how we see missions, to see that as a local body of believers, we are indeed responsible, and what a blessing it is to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost here in San Jose and to strive to reach those in places where the gospel has yet to be preached. We do believe, Father, that anyone who calls upon your name will be saved, but they cannot call unless they have heard, and they cannot hear unless we go. And so make us a people who go. I ask, Lord, that you would encourage us this morning with the great boldness of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark and the faithfulness of the church in Antioch to see this commission to send out missionaries to the Gentiles that they might too be saved. Give us that same excitement, give us that same desire, and give us the wisdom to carry it out in these very strange and difficult times. We don't want to be unfaithful to this calling as a body of believers, so cause us to be faithful, I pray, that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You got an extra hour. It messes me up. I, I, I'm, you think, well, why? I'm not wearing a jacket. You know where my jacket is? It's in the other car. I put my jacket in the wrong car and then drove down. Um, I know it's an extra hour, but I don't know about you. I'm, I, I like my times. I, I woke up at 4.30 going, okay, it's not 4.30, but it was 4.30 for me. Um, I, I pray that you have an extra, a little bit of extra energy. Maybe you're able to be more attentive because you had an extra hour. It doesn't usually play out that way, so... Um, by God's grace through the Holy Spirit, it won't matter to you that you're not time-bound because you're an eternal creature, right? All right. If you've been with us for the last uh, about six months now, we have been spending uh, several weeks in chapters 1 through 12. And we've seen the Holy Spirit poured out in Jerusalem, saving many in Jerusalem. And we saw the Jews starting to go out to make their way into Gentile areas. When we get to chapter 13 and for the remainder of the book... So chapter 13 in Acts to the end of the book in chapter 28, the focus will be on the mission to the Gentiles. And it's going to take about 17 years, not for us to get through it, 17 years is the period of time, roughly about 45 to 62 A.D. I hope it doesn't take us 17 years. (laughs) It's possible. It is possible. We won't do that. About 17 years as Paul traces the three major missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, and it culminates in Rome, and we'll actually end the book in Rome in chapter 28. But if you've, been, if you've been attentive to the word thus far, Luke has been preparing us for this Gentile shift. I mean, going back to Acts chapter 8, we see Philip um, sharing the gospel with the eunuch, and the eunuch is saved, and he heads off back to Africa. And then, of course, we spent time with Cornelius and Peter in Caesarea, and there were many Gentiles saved there, and we just ended our dialogue with Paul and Barnabas spending a full year in Antioch sharing the gospel with Gentiles, and many were being saved. So we're prepped now for this shift 
from chapter 13 through the end of the book to see God bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the whole world. Now, what is interesting, and I think a major shift for us here as we start chapter 13, is the role of the church. So up to this point in time, it had been primarily organic believers, primarily Jews, Hellenistic Jews, led by the Holy Spirit to go and preach the good news of Christ with the lost outside of the Jewish community. But here in chapter 13, we see the church, specifically the church in Antioch, but it will become the pattern for the church throughout history to formally recognize commission and send out missionaries to places where the gospel has yet to be preached. And so the role of the church here will become central for the next several chapters, and I want that to rightly weigh on us. Um, we're going to track Paul's movements. We're going to see where he is and who he's talking to. But that's not the emphasis, and Dr. Luke is not trying to glorify or idolize the Apostle Paul. He wants us to see the work of the Holy Spirit through the testimony of the missionaries to make churches, right? Planting churches throughout the Mediterranean basin all the way up to Rome. And so our emphasis will be that too. We want to see the work of the Holy Spirit bringing the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. And as we do, as we study the remainder of Acts, it is my hope that we will we'll grow in our understanding of how to do missions too, right? There's so much practical information of how we are to do this. And even more so, here in San Jose and sending missionaries throughout the world, I hope we grow in our desire to do it. I hope that we want to be a missional people and a missional church that pray for, finance, and go ourselves so that the lost may be saved. Uh, the title of the sermon is To All Nations. To the Nations, this, the theme will be missional in nature. Three points I want us to see and hopefully enable us to embrace our role Cambrian Park Baptist Church, by seeing clearly three things. Number one, the commission to go. Number two, the resistance when we go. And number three, the victory of going, right? The commission to send out, the resistance when we go out, and the victory is always God's because God always wins. I hope you never get tired of hearing me say that. God always wins all the time. And that's good for us because we're on God's side. The theme of the sermon is this. The church is God's agent of salvation to the world. The church is God's agent of salvation to the world. So we play an integral part in the work of the Holy Spirit redeeming lost souls. Point number one, let's look at the commission. So Luke picks up. We left off in Antioch. We pick up in Antioch. And he talks about prophets and teachers there. They were fasting and they were praying and they get a, a word from the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think of teachers, you get that. Those were people specially equipped by God to communicate God's word. And prophets, at this time in the history of God's redemptive plan, we saw in Acts chapter 12, we saw Agabus, and he had that ability to foretell the future. The, he said that a famine was coming. But for the most part, prophets in the first century church were there to edify and grow the community. And in this particular case, the Holy Spirit is going to communicate to the teachers and prophets and there are several here. We have Simeon, we have Lucius, we have Manian, and along with Paul and Barnabas, and probably the whole church, the Holy Spirit's going to communicate that he wants to send Paul and Barnabas out, that a new movement, a new phase in the redemptive plan is taking place. And so what's happening in Antioch, they're fasting and they're praying, and something glorious takes place. Look at the latter part of verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, now these were audible words, right? So they're hearing it. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, so important is this 
movement of formal missions endorsed and worked through the church of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, actually speaks audibly so they'll know exactly what to do. He didn't want this to be messed up. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now they had been in Antioch, as we know, for a full year ministering to and raising up disciples in the faith in the faith there. But the Holy Spirit says, now I'm going to take them. It says, set, apart, set them apart for me, for the Holy Spirit's work. Now, if you, if you know the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it is voluminous. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is our helper, our seal, our guide, our comforter, our strength, our intercessor. The Holy Spirit is very active in the redeeming of lost souls. But there's one essential work of the Holy Spirit in redeeming sinful man, that he wants missionaries, and I would say all Christians throughout the world, to participate in. And that is bringing conviction of sin upon the human heart. Jesus said this in John chapter 16. He was teaching about the Spirit's coming to his disciples. And he said, I will, Jesus speaking, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And when he comes, listen to what he's going to do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we see very quickly that the work of the missionary would be to bring the gospel message, but it would be a full gospel message. Paul and Barnabas and John Mark were to go out and they were to convict the world of their sin. They would testify to the sinfulness, the total depravity of the human heart. They would testify to the absolute righteousness of a holy God. And they would testify to the fact that unless there is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, which is the good news, there is only judgment. And so this is the work the Holy Spirit is going to be setting them apart to do, to bring conviction about sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, my beloved, the the good news of Jesus Christ, that a Savior died for your sins, that you might be saved, it falls on deaf ears unless you truly believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Most of you have shared the gospel, probably with a friend or family member, and you talked about the goodness of God and the gloriousness of Christ and how much God loves mankind. And then you said, and he wants you to be saved. And then you said, repent and believe this. I don't even know what you mean because I don't think I'm a sinner. The person who doesn't know and is not convicted of their sin does not believe that they need a Savior. And so the Holy Spirit is sending Paul and Barnabas out to bring conviction of sin and judgment and righteousness. Why? To compel people to repent and believe. You start to get an understanding of the holiness of God and the depth of your sin and you're going to be looking for a Savior and how glorious for the believer to say, oh, it's Jesus. Oh, by the way, it's Christ. He is the Savior. Look at verse 3. Luke says, Then after fasting and praying, they, the church, they laid hands on them and they sent them off. They They were fasting and praying because this was a serious endeavor. Right? And they wanted to magnify the seriousness of this mission to the Gentiles. And they were also fasting and praying because they were completely and totally dependent upon God to do the work. Right? And then they laid their hands on them. And that was symbolic of the church's formal endorsement of Paul and Barnabas. We think of laying on of hands as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas were already filled with the Holy Spirit. So this wasn't that. This was, this was the church saying, you are our ambassadors. You are emissaries from the church here in Antioch. And so it was the Holy Church that was, it was the Holy Spirit sending them out, but they were being sent out by the church on the church's behalf. And the Holy Spirit still calls, praise God, missionaries to go out from the church today. But instead of the audible voice, which we do not expect, that God speaks through his word, 
He speaks through prayer, and he speaks through brothers and sisters in a local church just like this. And he does that in order that we might know and affirm this person is truly being called by God. Now I know in, in our, our free-flying, free agency in Christianity in the West, we, we emphasize the individual or maybe the parachurch. But the New Testament, the model in the New Testament of missionaries go out, they go out from the local body of believers. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't support organizations like the International Missions Board. Those are church-supported. But the focus in the New Testament is churches equipping, praying for, and sending out missionaries. Churches just like ours. That's the model. And this church-sending model makes sense, right? Christ is the head of his church. The church is the body of Christ. Who better to equip, to identify, to call, to equip, to pray for, to finance, and to send out a missionary to another nation where there is no gospel than the local body of believers? There is no better agency than the local church. We are called to send. We are called to plant. This is the missionary model. And so when we embrace a model that's not in step with that, it means that we're not in step with the New Testament teachings. And we want to, as a church, see that. We want to see local churches just like ours, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, be responsible as the agents of sending and to take that responsibility and that great joy ourselves. When we do that, when we when we pray for our missionaries, that's, that's powerful in redeeming the lost. And we do that uh, quite often on our Sunday mornings. When we finance our missionaries, and we do, we finance missionaries through the IMB, and we finance missionaries in Saudi Arabia right now. So we have, um, in Dubai, we have that ability to support them. They need support. Um, we are very thankful, we, and we've been preaching now for years. We live in the Bay Area, and God has brought the nation's to the Bay Area. Kirk read this morning the, on the index of diversity, San Jose has a 97% out of 100. So we're in a good place. There are many people who live in our own backyard who have never heard the gospel, who have never even heard of who Jesus Christ is, let alone the full gospel message. So we are in a strategic location. God has brought the nations here. We are all, and we've taught this before, we are all missionaries. You're called to be a missionary at home, at work, in your neighborhood, here in San Jose. But one thing I want to emphasize today is that maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit will be sending you. That you don't hear and say, well, Paul, and it was Barnabas and John Mark, but what about me? What about you? Are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit calling you to go and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a place where maybe it's never been planted, where maybe there's no healthy church there? Maybe he is. We certainly know there's a desperate need there are 17,400 people groups in the world today, approximately, and that's, there are various ways that they evaluate that. 7,400 are considered unreached. What do I mean by unreached? They do not have a gospel testimony. They do not have witnesses of Christ. They have no church. They say, well, that's 7,400 out of 17,000. That's pretty good. The population of that 7,400, it's 42% of the world's population. 3.3 billion souls this morning have never heard of Jesus Christ. They've never even, they've never had a witness to testify to Christ, let alone a church to gather in like us. Oh my goodness, how blessed we are. How blessed we are that we can come and we can sing and we can pray and we can know this message. 3.3 billion souls have never heard. 3.3 billion souls are set to enter into an eternity before a holy God as sinners to be judged because there is no witness. 
My beloved, if that does not cause your heart to be moved a bit, then I would say it's quite dead. It's quite dead. That should cause us to want to go, want to send, want to pray for, and want to support. The hope of salvation by grace through faith in God's Son comes by hearing and believing. Paul said, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. And you say, praise God for that. But then he says, how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are, unless they are sent? We got to go. We got to go. We got to pray for people who go. We got to finance people when they go. And maybe some of us ought to be going too. I'm not trying to kick you out of here. I love you being here. We need workers here too, but maybe God is leading you someplace else. I hope you're sensitive to that. I hope you're praying to that end. I hope you're asking us to pray to that end too. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, and the church in Antioch, they were very sensitive to it. They were listening closely. The Holy Spirit spoke. And so... Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they go from Seleucia. That was the main port in Antioch, and they, they jump on a little boat, and they go down the Orontes River until they get to the base of the Mediterranean Sea, and then they get on another boat, and they go about 16 miles from the shoreline out to the island of Cyprus, and they land on the eastern side of the island in Salamis. Look at verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So John Mark's at their side. We'll hear more about him a little bit later. And they strategically go to the synagogues because why? I mean, the Jews have the scriptures of God. The Jews have the knowledge of God. So they're going to start there. They want to preach and teach the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. Jesus himself said salvation belonged to the Jews. But it was also very strategic, my beloved. This was a smart move. If they could go to the synagogues and preach the gospel of Christ and summon those synagogues, Hellenistic Jews would believe. Oh my goodness, what better access in the backyard of Hellenistic culture? They knew the culture, they knew the people, they knew the language. They would become indispensable in this missional endeavor. The local churches. So first we see the role of the local church, I pray, is to participate in the Great Commission. It's not just something we see other people doing or other organizations, that's for us. All right, are you excited about that work? All right, don't get too excited, there's resistance. Point number two. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, so they're in, they're in Salamis, and they're on the east side of the island, and back then they would have traveled down the southern part of the island, heading west, about 90 miles. They're preaching the gospel all the way as they go, and they get to the west side of the island, and they come to the city of Paphos. Now, Paphos was a, a pretty well-known city. It was destroyed in 15 B.C., and Augustus, he later said, I'm going to rebuild this. He rebuilt it actually in a different location, but he made it the seat of the, the Roman governor, actually the proconsul in that location to rule over. The proconsul was the local Roman ruler on the island of Cyprus. Now, I'm going to take a, a little sidetrack here because it's so, uh, so amazing. I want to encourage you to be um, overwhelmed with the precision of Luke's history. He is a master historian. Um, there were two types of Roman provinces at that time. There were imperial provinces, and the imperial provinces had governors that looked over local areas, and there were senatorial provinces. And the senatorial provinces, they had proconsuls. Well, guess what? At the time, and we know this from extra-biblical material, at the time of this writing, the island of Cyprus 
was a senatorial province, which means they had a proconsul, not a governor. Luke knew that. That's how accurate this is. He not only gets it proconsul right and not governor, he names him by Sergius Paulus. Names him exactly. Not only does he get the province right, he gets the title right, and he gets the name right. How do we know this? 1,900 years later, an archaeologist on the north side of the island of Cyprus found a coin. And you know what it said on that coin? Dated to this time period? In the proconsulship of Paulus. Fantastic. I mean, that's fantastic. I want to affirm to you Luke's historical account. It's incredibly accurate, and therefore you should read it as such. So Dr. Luke tells us this, the latter part of verse 6. A certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus, he had the ear of the proconsul Sergius. So he's like Simon the sorcerer. Remember Simon back in Acts chapter 8. Bargesus means, ironically, son of Joshua, son of salvation. But this guy is a pseudo-prophet. He's a trickster. And what he would do is he would take a little bit of sorcery and a little bit of religion and a little bit of science and he'd mix them together in order to fool people. And we know he was good because Luke tells us that he actually fooled Sergius Paulus who was a, look, a man of intelligence. So this guy was good. He was not your average trickster. Now Luke tells us that when Sergius hears, he hears that Paul and Barnabas are there and he hears about this new message and so he seeks their... their, um, company. He wants to hear about this message. Look at verse 8. Elimas, the musician, that's, that's Bar-Jesus. Um, he opposed them. He opposes Paul and Barnabas, and he sought to turn the proconsul, that Sergius, away from the faith. So why would Bar-Jesus do this? I mean, what, what did he really care if Sergius came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ? Well, it's likely that, that Bar-Jesus heard about some of the miracles and some of the power. Right, the healing of the sick, that was, that was his shtick. And he heard about people being raised from the dead. He couldn't do that. So he probably heard about this power, and he wanted to make sure he maintained his. Right, so he's in the house of the proconsul on Cyprus, and he's got the ear of Sergius. And so he has power and likely a very hefty compensation. And he realizes that if Sergius comes to an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he may be out of a job. Illegitimate job, yes, but out of a job nonetheless. So he's going to fight. He's going to fight hard to maintain his position of power and his money. Luke says that Bar-Jesus opposed Paul and Barnabas by seeking to turn Sergius, Sergius from the ter- truth. That word turn in the Greek, it means to pervert or distort or corrupt. So Paul and Barnabas come in. They meet the proconsul. They share the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly. They're teaching a crucified, risen Savior, talking about sin and righteousness and judgment and hope in Christ without question. And then here stands Bar-Jesus, right next to the ear of Sergius, whispering lies, telling untruths, perverting the pure gospel message. Now, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you cannot read this and not think about that great episode in Twin Towers when you remember when Gandalf gets to Rohan and he goes into King Theoden's chambers. Remember, he makes his way in. He's cloaked in his grave, but he's really now Gandalf the White. We know that, right? And he comes in, and there's King Theoden is under the spell of Saruman, and he looks horrible. He looks about 100 years older than he actually is. And there standing next to him was a man by the name of Wormtongue, and Wormtongue was this lackey that worked for Saruman, who was the dark wizard. 
And Saruman, uh, Wormtongue is standing there next to King Theoden as Gandalf comes in. Gandalf enters the throne room and Wormtongue says this, he's not welcome. And then King Theoden rambles something about Gandalf, Scarecrow not being welcome. And then, listen to this, Wormtongue says to Gandalf, Late is the hour in which this conjurer chooses to appear, ill news and ill guest. To which Gandalf promptly replied, be silent, keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. It was a battle between good and evil in the chambers of King Theoden's office. Now this showdown between good and evil in King Theoden's um, throne room is no different than what's happening here in Pathos. But this is on an eternal matter. Right, The Holy Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas to the island of Cyprus and specifically here to Sergius that he might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be set free from the spell and the power of sin and death. That's why they're there. Satan sent his missionary too. Satan says, I've got people on the ground. And so he has Bar-Jesus pervert the clearly clear gospel message that Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming. And he was trying to get Sergius confused so that he would not receive the gospel, repent and believe and be saved. Now, Bar-Jesus and the worm tongues, they are, they are many today. And I could probably spend 17 years talking about this, but I won't. There, there are people, cultures, nations constantly trying to pervert the simple, pure, beautiful gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Outside the church for decades now, we can go back, if you want to do some markers here, Origin of Species, 1859, Charles Darwin, was a defining mark in the, the progression of Western civilization. And that's, that's when naturalism was introduced. And that is the belief that, that everything that exists and all effects and all of the universe are caused by natural things, not supernatural things, not a God. Well, you introduce naturalism and let that bleed into the culture for 150 years, which it has. And then there's no need for a gospel. If there's no God, there's no need to have faith in God. Right? Well, how prevalent is that? A recent study by Barnes suggests that 40%, listen to this, 40% of young adults in the United States, they identify themselves as don'ts. Don't. What is a don't? They don't believe in God, they don't care about God, and they don't know if there is a God. 40% of young adults classify themselves as not believing in God, not knowing if there is a God, and not caring even if there is. Right, that's, that's the type of whispering that's permeated the classroom now for decades, and people are believing it. The other extreme is, if, of naturalism would be universalism, right? the belief that there is a God or, or, or gods, and everybody is going to go and be with that God or gods at some point in time. Now, if everybody's going to be saved, then also there's no reason for a gospel message of repentance through faith in Christ. Now, those two have permeated our culture, universalism and naturalism now for decades, and we're seeing that. We're seeing it in our schools, we're seeing it in our homes, and it's even making its way into the church, grievously so. But I would say inside the church, because remember, Bar, Bar Jesus is inside the throne room of Sergius, right? Inside the church, these deceptions are far more discreet. So subtle that I think that even intelligent believers like Sergius and like you might miss some of these deceptions, some of these whisperings how they've made their way into the church. One, I think today that it's made itself not only prevalent here, but certainly in places like, like Africa and the Middle East now is the prosperity gospel. That horrible teaching that God 
wills for all his people at all time to be financially blessed, physically blessed, emotionally blessed, no suffering, no sacrifice. Right? That's, that's a message that's captivated millions. Uh, one that we've seen in the church for years, and certainly we see it today, is the, the whisper of legalism. That if you, if you do certain things right, according to God's law, he'll be pleased, he'll let you in. If you don't, you're out. Now, that's, that's a horrible gospel. Um, we've seen an uptick in mysticism in the Orthodox Church today where you have a spiritual experience and based upon that spiritual experience, you now define your reality and your faith rather than the objective truth of Jesus Christ and God's word. In Reformed circles, now listen closely. These are all, these are all nasty little isms. In the Reformed circles, we have a problem with Biblicism. And Biblicism is knowing the Bible, knowing your doctrines, knowing Scripture really well, but not living in accordance with it. Well, that's a horrible whisper. Know the Word and don't do the Word. These are all ways the gospel has been perverted. There are two, though, as I was studying this and thinking about two that have come into the church together more recently. One is activism. And activism is picking something Sometimes important, sometimes not, and making it ultimate. And then you make it ultimate and you evaluate whether or not someone's a Christian based upon how they believe on that particular issue. It, is, it becomes the litmus test for true Christianity. So today, some Christians believe that if you do not support social justice or critical race theory or egalitarianism, egalitarianism teaches that, there's, that, that males and females are completely equal in all places at all times, no distinction of any kind. Um, that if you, if you don't embrace these things, that you are not a real Christian. Um, the other, coupled with it, is psychologyism. And you say, well, that, that sounds like a made-up word. Well, it's not. Um, it's the gospel that regards Christianity primarily as a self-help, self-help philosophy, right? So where we think of therapy and therapeutic messages, and that's what we hear from the pulpit, rather than the exposition and application of God's word to heal sinful man. Now, when you marry activism and psychologism in the same local church, you have a a church where the gospel is very much off track. In a church like that, you'll have a body of believers that are inwardly turned, asking questions like, how do I fix me? How do I fix me? What therapy will overcome my anxiety? What self-confidence will overcome my depression? Inward turned. And at the same time, a body of believers that is outwardly lost, asking questions, how do we solve the world's problems, poverty, social injustice, political corruption, without addressing the world's problems, which is what? It's sin. It's sin. So you take activism and psychologism and you put them in the same church, and many Western churches have embraced both, and you have a gospel that will not have the impact that Christ intended. My beloved, God wants the saints here to be well, He wants you to be well spiritually, emotionally, physically. But he wants us to move through that through biblical means. So rather than embracing a psychological solution wrapped in biblical terminology, he wants us to understand the biblical means of sin and confession of sin and turning from that sin and putting faith in Christ to walk in holiness. Now, I don't want to oversimplify someone's struggle, but we are not to preach a gospel of psychology. And at the same time, we would also say that God wants CPBC to be active in the lives of the neighbors. We want, don't we want, don't we would love to end poverty and racism and issues with justice here in our backyard? Of course. But that's not the main goal. 
The main goal is the proclamation of Jesus Christ so that souls who are destined to be judged for eternity can be saved. And guess what happens? When a church faithfully preaches and teaches and brings the gospel to the lost in their neighborhood, you know what happens? Lives get better. Marriages get better. Situations with racism and injustice get better. Why? Well, it's just real simple. You change a heart, you change a person, you change people, you change a community. You change a community, and a lot of these things go away. They go away because of the gospel of Jesus Christ taking hold. The commentator Lenski said, evil men are always in the road to prevent the gospel from saving others. That is true. Evil men, evil institutions always there whispering, worm tongues everywhere, whispering, that's not true, don't believe that, that's intolerant, that's sexist, that's racist. Like Bar-Jesus, bad science and false religions are always in great danger of being cast out by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why they fight. They know. They know Jesus is the king. They know Jesus wins. So when you preach the gospel, just like Bar-Jesus, they hear and they say, oh, that puts us in danger. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our money. Well, of course, Christ is king. So they will fight. The question for you is this. Do you realize you're in a fight for truth? Do you know that? And number two, are you fighting well? Are you fi- do you know you're in a fight for truth every moment of every day for yourself, for your family and friends and coworkers? And are you fighting well? Or are you, have you become like Sergius or maybe Theoden and you got whispering in your ear and it's tickling your ear and you don't even know it? Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, you know this, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then he says, ask for you always. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. That's our calling. We don't want our ears tickled. you got to know it's a battle for truth, and you got to know the truth in order to battle it well. Amen? All right. Number one. We saw the commission of the church, number two, the resistance we will face, and last one, the victory. All is not lost. It will be hard, but we win. We will seek resistance when we bring the gospel, but we win. Look at verse 9. So Sergius is spilling lies in, I mean, uh, Bargesus is spilling lies into Sergius' ears. But Saul, verse 9, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him at Bargesus, and he said, and I'll tell you what he said in a minute, but first, you say, well, now he's Paul. He was Saul. This was not a spiritual conversion, by the way. He's always been Saul and Paul. On the eighth day, he was given his name Saul because he was Jewish from a Jewish family from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Very likely on the ninth day, which was customary at the time, he was given the name Paul because he was a Roman citizen from the city of Tarsus. And Tarsus was a very proud place too. So he was Saul and Paul at the same time. So why the ship to Paul? Well, he's now going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Paul is a much better name amongst the Hellenists than Saul. So that's it. Nothing spiritual about it. Sorry to break your, if you had a weird theology about that. Look at the latter part of verse 9. Luke tells us that Paul... Filled with the Holy Spirit, now listen with all your might. He looked intently at Bar-Jesus and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? My beloved, this is not quiet speech. 
there is the unction of the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul. He looked at him intently. So if you have this vision of Christianity being passive and docile, Christ spoke like this. We saw it certainly in Matthew chapter 23 when he's speaking to the Pharisees. And Paul is speaking like this too. He's not angry, but he is intense. I mean, look at the words. He's calling him, look at the character of Bar-Jesus. You're son of the devil. Now that's ironic. His name is Bar-Jesus, Bar-Joshua, Bar-Son of Salvation. And he says, no, no, your real name? Bar-Diabolos, right? Son of the devil, son of damnation. And if that's not clear enough, which should have been, I'm pretty sure someone calls you son of the devil. You know what they mean, right? That wasn't clear enough. He says you're an enemy of all righteousness. Well, God is the one who's righteous, and he, it's from whom, he is the one from whom all righteousness comes. So he's saying you are not only a son of the devil, you are at enmity purely with God. Son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. And that word deceit, it literally means to ensnare or to entrap. And of course, that's what he's trying to do with Sergius. He's trying to trap him. He's trying to attempt him to not hear. Latter part of verse 10, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas come in. They preach the clear, straight path of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a sinner in need of salvation. This is how you get to God. This is how you get to heaven. It's through Christ. And Bar-Jesus is in there, and he's making it crooked. He's throwing all these statements in, trying to prevent Sergius from following the Lord. Now, the punishment for this is severe. Look at verse 11. And now, behold, this is Paul now speaking to Bar-Jesus. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This is fascinating. We know the same thing happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, right? It wasn't punishment like it is here. Same thing happened to him, though. Um, I want you to know something. It's severe, it's immediate, and it's also temporary. This is, a, this is a, an act of grace by God. It says, for a time, he would not be able to see the sun. For a time. Why is this? Well, Paul wants and God wants Bar-Jesus to be saved. Certainly his name we'd want him saved, right? He wants him to be saved. And so he exercises a preliminary judgment so that he cannot see. So that in not being able to see, he realizes God's power and repents and believes so that his end would not be eternal judgment and eternal darkness. And Luke here, there's some irony in this. Bar-Jesus sought to mislead Sergius right, trying to keep him out of the kingdom of light by deceiving him. And then the story ends here with Bar-Jesus who, who needs someone to lead him. Look at the latter part of verse 11. He went about, Bar-Jesus did, seeking people to lead him by the hand. So he's trying to keep Sergius from going into the light and God says, all right, I'm gonna make you blind and now you're gonna have to have other people lead you. Why was Paul so forceful? And he was forceful. Why was he so forceful with Bar-Jesus? Well, first, I believe that he wanted Bar-Jesus saved. It's a temporary punishment that he might be blinded for a time so that in his blindness he might see the depth of his sin, that he really was a son of the devil, that he was against all righteousness and repent and believe and be saved. Better that, my beloved, than him spending all of eternity in the absolute darkness of the devil's house. Better that. But I think the second reason, probably even a greater reason, is Paul wanted Sergius saved. And it was Bar-Jesus who was perverting the gospel. 
Um, my beloved, I, I would argue this. If there is ever a time where God in the Spirit will approve of your getting biblically forceful, it would be this time. It would be when the gospel is being proclaimed either in the church or amongst brothers and sisters or outside the church, and someone's coming along like worm tongue trying to tell a lie. That is the right time to stand up. That is the right time to speak the truth, even a hard truth, even a firm truth, maybe with a raised voice, making sure that that person, that soul, is not lost due to the crooked nature of the lies. If you have children and if a friend of your child came along and tried to get your son or daughter to engage in alcohol or drugs and you found out about it, oh, I dare say that your dialogue with that young person or their parents would not be passive. I imagine you would speak quite boldly to your child and their friend and their parents and whoever else would listen to make sure your son or daughter did not go down that crooked path, would you not? If your parents were trying to be deceived by a financial advisor who was coming in making a a crooked recommendation for their retirement, and you found that out, I imagine you'd have a spirit-filled word for that person, a little bit of unction in your voice. You'd probably come along. You might make a few phone calls. Who knows? Maybe a lawsuit would ensue. My beloved, how much more should we have the same unction as the Apostle Paul when someone's soul is at stake? How much more? More so than someone tempting your children with drugs. More so than someone trying to ruin your parents' financial future. More so because it's eternal. That means for the unsaved in your life, are you working hard? Are you listening closely to dispel the myths that have made their way in? And you know what they are. You hear them. Maybe some of you, when you gather for Thanksgiving, you'll hear them at the table. Maybe when you gather with your family and friends over Christmas, you'll hear them again. And you'll hear the perpetuation of these lies. Are you identifying them? Are you speaking against them? Do you know enough to speak against them? And if you do, do you speak or do you remain quiet? Souls are on the line. We are to be apologists that take what? Every thought captive for Christ. 1 Peter 3.15, giving an answer to everyone for the hope that we have. And what about your brothers and sisters in Christ? What about those in this church that you have covenanted with to grow together with? What about the lies that make their way in here? Are you aware of them? We had a, a woman several years ago who started really struggling with the teaching on judgment and eternal damnation. And she was listening to guys like Pope John Paul II, and she was listening to uh, Robert Schuller, and even back then, Billy Graham chimed in on this horrible dialogue, and that they were embracing a form of universalism. And they were teaching, essentially, that God's mercy ultimately trumps His righteousness. That in the end, if anybody's in hell right now, in the end, God's mercy will trump that, and the gates of hell will be opened, and they will ultimately be empty, and all people of all places at all times will be redeemed. And so she really struggled with that. And it took several dialogues, lots of scripture, lots of prayer for her to see that that's what the Bible teaches and that is in accordance with God's character as a thrice holy God. And she came to realize that the judgment is real, that hell is real, and that Christ can save her from that. And we are so thankful for that turning. What effect did Paul's response and God's punishment on Bar-Jesus have on the proconsul Sergius? Look at verse 12. I'll close. The proconsul believed. 
You need to stop right there. He believed. He was saved. He believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished. This is amazing. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So what a day for Sergius, right? Paul and Barnabas come into town. They preach the gospel. He hears the truth. Bar-Jesus is whispering in his ear. He hears the lies. God makes Bar-Jesus blind on the spot. He sees the power, the miracle. And then Luke tells us here that he's astonished. But I want you to notice what he's astonished by. He's astonished by the teaching of the Lord. He's astonished by the teaching of the Lord. He's not astonished by the curse of blindness that's cast upon Bar-Jesus. He's astonished by the curse of blindness that was cast upon Jesus, God's son. Because that's what Paul and Barnabas taught. Paul and Barnabas taught Sergius that God the Father had sent his son to earth to live a sinless life and then ascend the cross in our place. Sergius heard why so that Jesus, the Son of God, could experience, listen closely, the outer darkness. It's a a phrase used in Scripture to describe eternal damnation. To experience the outer darkness of eternal damnation, not because Christ deserved it, but because we deserved it. I imagine Sergius was astonished when the Apostle Paul told him about those three hours upon the cross from noon to 3 p.m. on the day of our Lord's crucifixion, when Jesus' body hung broken on the cross, blood flowing from his head and his back and his hands and his feet, and how during those three hours, what happened? Darkness, the outer darkness of God's wrath came and enveloped the earth. And there was nothing but darkness, and everybody became blind. I imagine he was astonished that Jesus Christ was willing to take that darkness upon himself, that he allowed God to cloak him on the cross in the eternal darkness of our sin and our death and the grave itself. And he was astonished, no doubt, that on the third day, as Paul told him, that Jesus Christ rose from the darkness of sin and death and that grave, and he came out and he ushered in the kingdom of light, the messianic kingdom, to this fallen world, and Sergius was being called into it, into the kingdom of the Son. In other words, the Holy Spirit had worked on his heart, had it not? The Holy Spirit, through the testimony of Paul and Barnabas, brought Sergius conviction over his sin, over the righteousness of God and the judgment to come. And Sergius had been blind. He saw that for the first time, that he was no different than Bar-Jesus. He was blind too, spiritually. He didn't see the holiness of God. He didn't see his own sin, but now he did. He saw it clearly for the first time. And he saw clearly that through repentance and faith, God was granting him forgiveness. He was granting him grace, that the outer darkness which awaited him before awaited him no longer, that he was brought into the kingdom by grace through faith. He was no longer enslaved to his own sins. He was no longer enslaved to the forked tongue bar Jesus. God won in Sergius's life. God was victorious. Sergius had put his faith and hope in a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus had, in fact, paid the price for his sins and that God the Father had in fact received it and was pleased with that sacrifice. And therefore, Sergius had no fear of judgment. He had no fear of his own sins not being forgiven. He had no fear of coming before God as a son of the devil and an enemy of all righteousness because he had been made righteous in Christ. What a transformation for this man. 
indwelt by the Holy Spirit, saved by grace, completely forgiven, changed in Christ forever and ever to be a son now of the living God in the kingdom of light, never to experience darkness again. Extraordinary. In that scene in the throne room of Theoden, after Gandalf cast the evil spirit out of King Theoden, the, the, the movie's great, the book describes it as well, King Theoden becomes transformed and he, he looks like he's 120 and then he gets back to like the age of 40. His hair goes back to its normal color. His skin um, clears up and his eyes become alive again. Um, he's no longer under the corrupting influence of Saruman. Gandalf says this to him, listen. He says, breathe the free air again, my friend. Breathe the free air again, my friend. My beloved, this is the battle that we are in for ourselves, for our loved ones, and for the lost in our mission field, that we are to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know the Lord, that they might breathe the free air of the gospel of grace, that they might realize they don't have to remain enslaved to sin, that they too, like Sergius, they can repent and believe and have eternal life right now. That's the mission we're called to, bringing free air to people who are only breathing the poison of sin and death and judgment. So the only question, and I'll close in prayer on this, is will we be faithful as a local church to bring the free air of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost? Will we? Will we pray for those who have never heard of Jesus Christ that they might repent and believe and be saved? Will we finance those who are already in the mission field Will we pray for those in the mission field? And the last question for you, will you go? Might you go? Is the Spirit leading you to do that? I pray that you would, as I close in prayer and we take me, ask yourself that question. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. Ask yourself the question. If it's the Spirit's will for you to go, then you ought to go. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you forgive us for our resistance to this great calling. You've called every believer and certainly every local church to participate in the great mission of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. I ask, Lord, that you would not only instruct us on how to do this well, prepare us for the resistance that we will experience, but in our hearts right now, I pray by your Spirit, you would cultivate a deep desire to participate a deep desire. So we will not let a day go by, Father. We are not praying for the missionaries who are in the field and for the lost who have never heard of Christ. Not a day will go by, Father, we do not pray that you, the Lord of the harvest, will send many workers into that harvest field, for it is ripe that we will faithfully give of our time and resources and monies to the mission, Lord, to see the gospel go to those 7,400 people groups, those 3.3 billion people who have never heard the name Jesus Christ. And Father, if you are willing and you are pleased, if there is a single soul in this church, or maybe many, that you are calling to do what Barnabas and Paul and John Mark did back on the island of Cyprus, I pray that you would make that known to us. Make that known to them. Make it known to us, Lord. And may we be an equipping church, preparing them and then sending them out to Father, make that known. We, we want to be faithful as a body to do your will.
This is your will for your church. We are the agents of salvation to the world. Make us faithful to that, I pray. And not just Cambrian Park Baptist Church, Lord, but certainly every true church here in the South Bay, in this state, in this country, and throughout the world. Make every true church a missional church. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen.